10 years old, uh, we sold our house in Lake Forest Park, uh, which is a neighborhood north of Seattle. And we were looking for a new house. And part of the deal that my parents kind of struck with me, at least, was when we get a new house, we can get a dog. I was like, part of the deal. And I was like, so excited. Uh, up until that point, we had hundreds of cats, but never a dog. And you think I'm kidding. No, we had hundreds of cats. Ask me about that sometime. Um, but as we were looking for a new house, uh, you know, as, as one does when you're looking for a new house, you look at a lot of houses. And we, we were looking at this house. It was in Shoreline. It was a rambler. It was in the woods. It was pretty ugly. Uh, not a great location. Um, but it had a doggy door. It had a doggy door, and it had, like, a wraparound, almost boardwalk around the whole house for a dog. Like, it was a dog house. And that sold me. I was ready to put down the down payment myself. And I was so excited. And my parents did not get that house. (laughs) And I remember talking to my mom. And I was 10 years old, and I was like, and I'm the youngest of four. And I'm kind of the good kid. Like, my oldest siblings were, like, the rebellious ones. I was, like, the good kid. But in my heart, I was mad. I was mad that we did not get this house. And I remember talking to her, and, and I was really honest with her. And I said, Mom, is it okay that I'm mad at you? I'm a 10-year-old kid. And my mom said something that I will never forget. And if you're a mom of a young kid, this this is textbook. This is what you should do because it really was awesome. She said, yeah, of course it's okay. You're free to be mad at me. And that one sentence out of her mouth took away my anger, (laughs) right? I I was all of a sudden not mad anymore because I was free to be mad at her, and she wasn't defensive at all. So, we'll come back to why that matters in a minute. But the Psalms, they are God's ordained praise and prayer book of his people. Psalms means praises. It's just a simple, straightforward meaning. But listen to this. Half the Psalms are laments half of them. And lament is an expression of passionate grief or sorrow or frustration. There are more lament psalms than praise psalms for the first entire half of the Psalter. And then as you sort of cross over the halfway mark in the psalms, the praise psalms start to win out. And so if you were to look at a chart and and you looked at the first half, it would be High on laments, low on praises. If you look at the second half, it would be high on praises, low on laments. And if you look at all of the laments in the Psalms, every single one of them turns to praise by the end, save one. We're going to hit that one on the last week of this series. But every Psalm of lament turns to praise. So all of these 
aspects of the Psalms and the structure of the book at large and the structure of each lament. This structure is telling us something. It's instructing us in how we praise God. It's telling us something about praise itself. Praise is not always automatic. Often it has to come through lament, through bringing our honesty, our complaints, our frustrations, our feelings, all of these things, bringing them to God. That's what a lament is. And this tells us something, too, about the character of God, that he is the kind of God who isn't afraid of our innermost thoughts. He's not afraid of what's all the way down there. He's not afraid of that. In fact, he's not just not afraid of it. He welcomes it. He wants it because he wants all of you, not just the foyer face you, the paste to smile on you. He wants the whole you. And those of us who believe in and trust in the God of the Bible, we know, as James says, that every good and perfect gift comes from God. We know that. Our health, our jobs, our stability, our sobriety, our security, our peace, our family, our friends, our freedom, all of this, these are all good gifts that come from a good God. And it's true. It is. They are. But here lies the problem. Here lies what we're talking about today. What happens to our faith in this good God when one of these good gifts disappears? Right? What if you get terminal cancer? What if two weeks from now you're, you're all of a sudden in a slate of tests and you get, you're going to get chemo the following week and you don't know how long you have? That could happen to any of us at any time. What happens when you lose your job? What happens when your best friend stabs you in the back? What happens when we lose a good gift from this good God? So when things like these happen, we are faced with a fork in the road. We're always faced with forks in the road, every day. But when trials like this come along, we're faced with a fork in the road, whether to hold on to God or to let go, because he seems to have let us go. If we choose to hold on to God in spite of these sorts of difficulties, it's because we recognize that God is better than the gifts he gives. That we don't mistake his good gifts for him himself. It's because a relationship with him is the greatest gift there is. And that's the only thing that can't be taken. It requires a stubborn faith. A stubborn faith that that won't let go to God even when it feels like he's let go of us. And a stubborn faith requires robust tools. And lament is one of those tools. That's why it's been given. That's why the Psalms were written. They were written for our sake. 
so that when we face real life, we might have the tools we need to not let go. So when we encounter difficulties, really what lament springs out of is two questions. The first is, God, where are you? Or, God, where were you when this happened? That's the first question. The second is, God, if you are truly a God of love, how could you let this happen? How could you take this from me? Those are the two questions that that inform lament. And those are the two questions that are appropriate and okay to ask, as we'll find out the next five weeks. And at the heart of lament is the simple truth that, just like my mom, God allows our anger. God allows our doubts. He welcomes our questions. He welcomes our frustrations, our cares. He allows us to be completely undone in his presence. Completely raw. Completely vulnerable. And it's just that. His presence in those times that transforms our questions, transforms our lament, our our sorrow into praise. That's why all of these laments turn to praise. And sometimes they turn to praise on a dime where you're like, where did that come from? How did you get to praise when you just said that? We'll find that today. So back to that fork in the road. When When we face times of difficulty, we can either, we have two options, we can either lament in his direction or we can isolate ourselves from him and from others and grow apart. Those are our two options. But lament is a robust tool for us. It's it's a gift for us because God is a good giver of good gifts. So over the next five weeks, we're looking at five categories of lament which is basically five reasons you might need to lament. And we're calling it UG prayers because UG is an okay prayer. Did you know that? We're teaching our kids to pray, and my brother wrote this cute little book on prayer for kids. And um, he wants to do a second edition because he's like, oh, I need to put UG in there. But the different categories are, are uh, thank you, thank uh, you, I'm feeling, uh, I'm sorry, and please, you know, just some simple categories for kids to learn how to pray. But he's like, ugh, that's got to be a category too. So these categories are, for us, we're going to look at enemies today. We're going to look at enemies. We're going to look at physical illness. We're going to look at mental illness. We're going to look at sin. And we're going to look at forsakenness. And that's kind of a a difficult word there, but another way to think about this is, for, so today, for enemies, we're looking at how to lament when someone hurts you. How to pray when someone hurts you. And then, how to pray when, when your own body is against you. It's got autoimmune disease, or illness, sickness, old age. How to pray when your body turns against you, how to pray when your mind turns against you, 
in depression or mental illness or anxiety, any of these things. How to pray when you hurt others. And then lastly, how to pray when it seems like God is the one hurting you. And that's Psalm 88. And this isn't an exhaustive list. You'll notice that many of these categories overlap. But we're going to be looking at these five categories in five different psalms with the goal not just of learning from these laments, but learning how to lament ourselves. So that's why I want you to take one of these things and, and practice this on your own. So we're not just listening and hearing the prayers of others thousands of years ago, but we're learning how to bring these things to God ourselves. And so to help us in discovering how to lament ourselves, each week we're going to look at a psalm through five stages of lament. And this isn't like a checkbox thing. It's, it's a helpful thing. It's like when you're going through grief, there's five stages. And you don't, you don't go through grief with a handout and go, okay, all right, I've got to go through number one first. Here we go. No, it's helpful because you look at it and go, okay, that's, yep, I'm in that one. That's why it's helpful. So we're going to look at five stages of lament. The first stage is the address. Who are you talking to? The second stage is complaint. What do you want to say to him? What issue do you have with God? The third stage is request. What do you want from God in this time? Fourth stage is motivation, which is basically, on what basis are you founding this request? What, what characteristic of God are you begging and pleading before him? And lastly, confidence. This is the turn to praise part. So we're starting with Psalm 13. We're talking about enemies. And this is a great psalm to begin with. It's only six verses long. Uh, it's a textbook lament. If you were to look for a, a textbook lament, this would be it. It has every stage. It has every, uh, it goes in consecutive order from address to confidence, nice and neat. So this is a great psalm for us to kind of cut our teeth and learn. What is this practice? What is this ancient practice, thousands of years old, that the people of God have been doing for this long? And how can we learn from it? And we're starting with enemies because... Well, it's the most common reason for lament in the Psalms. Almost every Psalm of lament has enemies involved. And it's the most complicated. Because how do we square the, the verbiage that the psalmists use toward their enemies with how Jesus commands us to think about and treat our enemies? How do we square those two things? How do we lament when other people do us wrong? How do we square lament and complaint over our enemies with Jesus' command to love and forgive our enemies? So what we'll discover is that lamenting to God about our enemies becomes the very transformative process by which we receive his love for them. All right, enough talk. Let's read. All right, take a look at Psalm 13. 
I'm going to read the title because it gives the, the author. To the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Let's pray. Dear God, we just come before you and we desire to learn from your word. We desire to learn about you from your word. Lord, I pray that you would use your word this morning to to reform our perception of who you are and to to make it more true to your likeness. Lord, help us to cast aside the images of you that we've built up in our minds and and to, to learn your goodness afresh. To learn that you are approachable, accessible, and more than that, your arms are open wide for us to come to you. Help us to learn more of that truth this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we start with the address. So, firstly, it's a psalm of David. He's the one writing it. He's the one who's mad at God. And David had a lot of enemies. If you've read the story, the life of David, uh, you'll know. Uh, he, He had enemies from the beginning. God anointed David to replace Saul, the first king of Israel, because Saul basically turned his back on God. And so God picked someone else. Saul didn't like that. So he pursued David to to try and kill him for years. And then David takes the kingdom and there's a certain amount of of peace in his lifetime in the kingdom of Israel. But later in life, David's own son becomes his enemy. And David has to flee for his life from his own son. So for much of David's adult life, he's on the run from people who wanted him dead. So that's David. He's writing the psalm. And so as we, as we recognized last week, in, in the grand scheme of things, for the most part, I'd say for most of us, and as Christians here in America, we have it pretty good. Most of us don't have enemies as far as David's definition. Most of us aren't looking around the corner making sure that person isn't here to do that to us. Some of us do. I know people who are in this church who have had those types of situations. But Jesus promised that following him faithfully would lead to enemies. That was a promise of his. So we've got to take him at his word and be prepared in the very least. 
And all of us have spiritual enemies that are, that are out to do us harm. We learned that a few months ago in Ephesians 6. But even without enemies, all of us get hurt by other people. And enemies is, a, is kind of one of those words like, I don't know if I have enemies, but like, yeah, people hurt me. All of us have people hurt us. And some of us still carry the physical or emotional scars from those situations by what other people have done to us. So, let's learn how to pray when other people are out to hurt us or who have hurt us. So, the first stage of lament we see here is the address. Who are you lamenting to? Who in the world would listen to your complaint? We start the psalm and David gets his address out of the way quickly. He actually starts his complaint first. He says, how long, O Lord? Oh yeah, I guess I should, you know, say who I'm talking to quick because I've got complaint on my mind and I want to get to it. That's David's mindset. It's buried in the complaint. How long, O Lord? There's no our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. <laughs> he's, not, he's not starting off a model prayer here. He's just getting to his complaint. He's mad. He's frustrated. He's heartbroken. And yet, remember this word Lord, if it's all caps, which it is here in my Bible, it's the personal name of God, Yahweh. This is the name of God that God gave for himself in Exodus when he describes himself as merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is Yahweh. This is who David is addressing. David knows God personally. We find that out in the story of David. He's a man after God's own heart. He loved God so much. He knows that in a pinch, he can throw up a lament to God without, without all the trappings of a model prayer. We can do the same. Paul recommends that we, as Christians, as believers in Christ, that we pray without ceasing. Have you ever thought about what that means? Never stop praying, basically, he says. And I remember when I was in college and I broke up with my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time. Dumb move. But obviously it worked out. But I remember in the days that, in the weeks that followed that, I was in like the mo one of the most intense periods of grief of my life. And I was always about to cry. <laughs> I don't know if, if you can relate, but if you're going through something like intensely difficult, a lot of times you're just on the verge of tears, always, for days or weeks or however long. I want to, I want to uh, offer the idea that pray without ceasing means you're always on the verge of prayer because you, you know your need. If we know our need for God, and we will be, we're just always on the verge. Anything could push us over the edge <laughs> into prayer. 
pray without ceasing means to always be in that place. Always be ready to talk to God. And the cool thing is he's always ready for you to talk to him. David is always on the verge of prayer, and so he jumps right to it. He says, me again, Lord. All right, how long? <laughs> he jumps to his complaint in verses 1 and 2. How long, O oh Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? So, this is his complaint. He jumps right to it. This is how he starts the psalm. He says, how long? Four times. And this isn't a question. This is, well, it is a question, but it's a rhetorical question. He wants to get across the idea of impatience. God, what are you doing? It's like the psalm Jared read. Why are your hands in your pockets? Come on. Uh, the message paraphrases this complaint like this. I love this. It says, long enough, God. You've ignored me long enough. I've looked at the back of your head long enough. Long enough I've carried this ton of trouble, lived with a stomach full of pain. Long enough my arrogant enemies have looked down their noses at me. That's what David is saying. He's frustrated at God, his God. He says, oh, Lord, my God, in, in verse 3. David knows God, but that doesn't mean he, that, I mean, that means he, he gives him everything. Did you know you can be frustrated at God? Did you know that that's okay? Biblical even? David lays out his frustrated complaint at God. And notice the subject of this complaint. The reason for his complaint goes beyond just enemies. These categories overlap. In verse 1, he feels forsaken by God. How long will you hide your face from me? He feels forsaken by him. We'll look at this in week five. In verse two, David is battling intense depression and sadness. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day? We're going to look at that in a couple weeks. And then in verse three, we find him afraid for his physical safety. Lest I sleep the sleep of death. But the primary complaint in David's heart is that his enemies, those who are against him, those who have hurt him, seem to have the upper hand in his life. That's his primary complaint. And for David, like we, we looked at earlier, his enemies range from foreign powers and nations to, to his own family. Listen to his complaint in his, another lament he wrote in Psalm 55. He says, for it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked. This is a, a close friend that has turned against him. How do you navigate the difficulty of, of that comes when someone who used to be close to you turns away from you? 
Who do you turn to when the person you used to turn to turns against you? These psalms exist. The very fact that these prayers exist, were canonized, written down for our sake, reveals that there is someone you can turn to. And the people of God have been turning to him every day since the beginning of time. There is someone who wants to hear it. All of it. And how thankful are, are we when we get when we have a friend we can complain to. God is being that friend for David right here. And so David finishes his complaint and he moves on to his request. In verse 3 he says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. This is the part of lament that asks something of God. So we start with the address, we move to the complaint, and then the request. What does David want God to do here? It's pretty simple. Save his life, right? David wants God to save his life from his enemy. The NET translation uh, translates verse 3 like this. Look at me. Answer me, O Lord my God. Revive me or else I will die. That's his request. It's like David is speaking to God, trying to like grab his face and say, Look at me. Please. Save me. Rescue me. I know you can. Do it. So David wants rescue from his enemy. So it's worth noting here that this psalm, Psalm 13, this is about as mild as it gets when it comes to dealing with enemies as far as the psalms of lament go. There's a lot of enemies in the psalms. There's a lot of enemies in the psalms of lament. And this is very mild. David actually doesn't request God to do anything to his enemies. He just says, rescue me from them. But he doesn't he doesn't ask God to do something to them like he does elsewhere. David is silent here with what God is to do with these enemies. Not all the Psalms are this polite. Many of you probably read through the Psalms. We've read through them here on Sundays. Most of the, the lament Psalms deal with enemies and they range from silence like this one to slay them, <laughs> to imprecations or curses. Many of you have heard of imprecatory psalms. This is not one of them. But the imprecatory psalms, oftentimes the psalmist is asking God to enact judgment on people. Psalm 55, the, the one we read from earlier about David's close companion who betrayed him it goes on to the request. Listen to the request of Psalm 55. Let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol, the place of the dead, alive. That's the request. What in the world do we do with these sorts of psalms? How do we reconcile these with Jesus' clear commands to love our, our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. So, imprecatory psalms. 
imprecatory psalms are basically psalms of lament over one's enemies where you're, you're giving God everything. Everything in your heart toward those who have done you wrong or those who have done others wrong, those who have wronged the innocent. So first I want to let you know that the problem of imprecatory psalms, this is a problem, not a problem like, it's, it's something to, to think about. <laughs> what do we do with these? And it's an age-old problem. It's a, it's a problem that the church has been debating for centuries. So you're, you are free to, to have your opinions on it. Just want to let you know. And you're free to disagree with me. But my belief is that these sorts of psalms can be reconciled with Jesus' clear commands. Let me explain. It has to do with our hearts and God's heart. Okay? We, human beings, we are made in God's image, and therefore, we have a natural, baked-in, hankering for justice. That's, that's good. We're made in God's image. When others, when, sorry, when we or others we love are wronged unjustly, we're mad. And that's good. But our hearts are also twisted by the deceitfulness of sin. We oftentimes, yes, we want justice, but we, we can't see clearly what, where the line is. We, we have a hard time seeing what is just and unjust because of the fall. God, on the other hand, is perfect. And he is both perfectly just and a God of mind-blowing mercy. His justice and his mercy united in the cross. Okay? On the cross, God's judgment against sin and his mercy towards sinners blends in perfect unity, creating the one and only opportunity for reconciliation between God and humanity. Okay. What does that have to do with imprecatory psalms of lament over one's enemies? Everything. Injustice still runs rampant in the world. And God is still a God of justice. Therefore, when we encounter injustice, when someone hurts us wrongly, when we encounter enemies who mistreat the innocent, we have every right to bring any prayer we feel like praying to God. We can ask God to judge the wicked. Why? Because ultimately, he will. He will. But in that process, we also, like Peter says, entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. So in the process of bringing our complaint, our request, our desire for God's justice in our lives, in our loved ones' lives, in the world at large, we are entrusting it to him. We are laying it at his feet. Our hands are now off because we are entrusting it to the God who judges justly. 
And then, and only then, can we seek to love our enemies and pray not just for them to get what they deserve, but to pray for their salvation, knowing that we were also enemies of God. We were in that same place, in need of judgment, deserving of judgment, and yet God saved us. And we can pray for the resources we need to even forgive them. It's, that, it's a great exchange. It's in the process of lamenting. Of, it's basically getting it off our shoulders, out of our inner selves. Give it all to God. All of it. And God will use that to transform you. You can't conjure up love for your enemies. Try. Can't do it. God can give it to you. But you need to give him all of yourself. So we can bring our complaint to God over our enemies, over those who have hurt us, that he then by his spirit can remind us of his heart for us and give us his heart for those same enemies. It's only possible with a God like this. It goes to the core. And so after David makes his request in verse 3, he moves on to what's called the motivation in verse 4. This is the book, one of the books I read for this was called it Divine Arm Twisting. Basically, hey God, remember when you said you're a God of love? Act like it. Yikes. But that's what David starts to do here. He says, Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. The motivation is the why behind their request. Why is David asking to be saved? What does he want? How is he basing this request? Why should God be compelled to act? And David's rooting his acting on with on God's reputation. If God doesn't act, then David's enemies will be able to say, we won! We beat David's God! So David basically says to God, God, you couldn't possibly want anyone thinking you didn't show up faithful to your people, would you? Come on. This is your reputation I'm caring about. But his motivation goes deeper than just God's reputation. As he turns to praise in verse 5, David begins to root his hope and motivation in the character of God. He says, I have trusted in your steadfast love. It's like David is holding out God's love in front of God, saying, God, you're the one. You're the one who said you're a God of love. Well, in my humble opinion, this means you should step up and help me out. Show up in power for me right now. This is the very love that God describes himself with. So this is a, a proper and appropriate motivation. This is the word said. that steadfast love. It's one of the most important concepts in the Bible, said. This is God's faithful, loyal, steadfast 
love. It's the love that outlasts all other loves. It's the commitment that outlives all other commitments. This is the love of God that David knows personally. And it's this love and David's knowledge and past experiences of this love that leads him to the final step of lament, which is confidence. Verse 5 and 6, he says, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is quite the turnaround. If I were a junior high teacher, I'd be like, that's a big butt, and make everyone laugh. But it, it turns on a dime. It's, it's a it's complete shift. David says, but I have trusted. Yeah, yeah, I'm frustrated. I'm depressed. I'm angry. I'm impatient for God to take his hands out of his pockets and rescue me. But David does an about face. And this is common to pretty much all of the Psalms of Lament. The reversal brought about by the motor force of trust, the motor force of faith, the stubborn faith that, yeah, God's, I don't know what God's doing, what he's not doing. I don't know why he's not doing what I want him to do, but I'm not going to walk away. I refuse to walk away, no matter what. And look what David does here. He links his past to his present and future. He says, I have trusted in your steadfast love, and my heart shall rejoice. I know that I'm going to rejoice in the future because of what I've experienced in the past. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Trust in God's faithful love has gotten me this far. Therefore, I will rejoice in your salvation. So much of living life with God is developing a good memory. We tend to forget that God has already gotten us out of so many other messes. If we would only recount those past evidences of his faithfulness, then this current season wouldn't freak us out so much. And notice that Dave is making a choice here. He's choosing to trust and even a choice to sing. He doesn't wait for his emotions to catch up. Before he even finishes his lament, he makes his decision. He's not walking away. He's not going to do it. He's not going to let go of God. In fact, he's going to sing. David was a musician, as you know. You know. He is decisive that he is going to give God his whole self, including his talents all of himself. So these statements of praise and trust, they came through lament. Not around, not over, not under. You got to go through it. That's how he came to this place of fuller, more confident trust and faith. It's through lament. It's through being able to dig it all out and throw it all at God's feet. 
he found a deeper well of faith after laying himself bare before his God. Other people, they hurt us. That's life. That's part of living in a broken world full of broken people. And we're going to get to us hurting others, don't worry. But the fact remains, we get hurt. How we respond to this hurt can either draw us closer to God or it can push us away from him. It's powerful. When you are hurt, you're in a powerful, transformative season of your life. And God can use it to draw you closer to him. David shows us that even if his enemies think they've prevailed over him, it's not true because God remains faithful. When you are mistreated, use it as an opportunity to lament in God's direction and receive his hesed, that steadfast love, the good gift of a good God that will never disappear. When my daughters are mad at me, they don't pull any punches. They don't feel like they have to clean up their their language (laughs) before they start telling me what I've done wrong and how I should fix it. I like that. I'm glad. I don't want them to do that. I want them to to come at me with all you've got. I can take it. Beloved, I'm talking to you guys. We are God's children now, John says. So that's how God feels about us. He can take it. Bring your whole self to him who loves you and gave himself for you so that he could have all of you. And lament is a way for us to do that. So let's pray.